Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Nehemiah. We are in chapter 9. Nehemiah, chapter 9. As a part of a series through the entire book of Nehemiah, we've been looking at new beginnings. We're coming out, I hope, of the pandemic. That'll be a new beginning. We're transitioning in locations with our church, hopefully at the end of the summer. That'll be a new beginning. You're in various places in your life with parenting and marriage and singleness. You're a student or you're retired. This can be a season of new beginnings. And the book of Nehemiah helps us there. We'll begin in Nehemiah chapter 9 today. This season, if you're all a sports fan, is known as March Madness. Show of hands if you filled out a bracket this year. Okay, a lot. Show of feet if you're still happy with your bracket. Okay, we got one or two feet up. If you're like mine, uh, you're leading at the start, but when you look forward, there's not a lot of hope. (laughs) All the ones I predicted are gone. The American Gaming Association said there were 40 million brackets filled out this year in America alone. 40 million people do this big event called March Madness. I was reminded that this year is the 20th anniversary of a team from the Triangle winning the whole tournament. In 2001, Duke, love them or hate them, Duke won the national championship. And I thought back because I was watching at that time, in the final four, the game before the championship, Duke did something that had never been done before by a champion. They fell behind by 22 points. So if you know basketball, 22 is a lot, and no one in tournament history had ever come from behind after a 22-point deficit in the Final Four. But thankfully, Duke had a secret weapon. They had the National Player of the Year on their team. Shane Battier was his team, was his name. He played for the team. He did great. He had 25 points in that game and led them back in the biggest comeback victory ever. He had 18 in the final, and he got named Final Four MVP. He was a March Madness hero. I'm sharing this story for two reasons. That's as close as Duke is going to get to the tournament this year. It breaks my heart to say it. But secondly, this is the kind of situation that the people of God find themselves in in the book of Nehemiah. And chapter 9 brings this out. These people of God are down and desperate in many ways. No one's ever come from behind in this type of deficit. I don't know how much you know about the book of Nehemiah. Some of us have been studying it together. But I want you to think just for a moment and imagine what it would be like to live through an exile. All right, Some of you might be feeling it some with COVID, right? But we're going to magnify it. Imagine if this week an enemy of the United States in a surprising, unexpected way invaded 
triangle area, took us over, and you and your family, leading your kids, had to walk to Wilmington, where you were put on a boat or a plane, and you were shipped off along with your family, those who didn't die in the initial attack, those who didn't die in the walk, you were shipped off and lived in another country under the heavy hand of oppression, not for one or two years, but for 65 years. You lived in a country where you didn't know the language, the culture, didn't have job training to live there, and you were oppressed. And now imagine, at the end of that period, you get to come back to the triangle. Of course, on the way back, your adult children are now leading you by the hand because it's 65 years later. And when you come back, of course, someone else is living in your home, if it stands at all. Downtown Raleigh is decimated. Some are rebuilding, but there are terrorists in the streets who are keeping the triangle from being rebuilt. Imagine the emotional psychological, relational, financial toll that would take on you and you get a taste of where the people of God are. But in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah, the amazing thing is with all of the strain of the exile, personal, familial, financial, emotional, their chief concern is a spiritual one. They're concerned the most throughout all of these circumstances with their personal and corporate relationship to God. It's amazing. And so that's where this text is going to connect with you today. The question is, do you feel like you are desperately behind in your relationship with God? Do you ever feel that way? I do. I feel that way. Like I'm down 50 in need of a hero. Maybe you find more anger than you do joy in your parenting. Or that you're often angry at yourself because your attitudes and your words don't glorify God when you're parenting. Maybe you're trapped in the devastating sin of pornography. You feel more shame than sonship in your relationship. With God? Maybe your pursuits of maintaining your body or decorating your house or presenting yourself as a presence online, all of those work more to your own glory than they do to God, and you know it and you hate that about yourself. Perhaps simply if you compare the affections of your heart today to how you felt five years ago, ten years ago in college. You see a deficit there, right? Your heart has just grown cold towards God. If any of these situations are close to where you're at, this sermon and this chapter is for you. I really hope sometime today you would just take the time and read all of chapter 9 out loud by yourself or with your family. It's very refreshing. It's very hopeful, but it's also very real. And we're going to look at it together. My hope is that by the Word and the Spirit, we will experience a new beginning together in our relationship with God. Because what we'll see here is that when you're desperately behind in your relationship with God, 
It is only Jesus Christ, the great deliverer, who can rescue you. He can enliven your soul. There's hope when you're down 50 to 0. Jesus becomes the hero. So let's look together at Nehemiah chapter 9. Now let's get the context because we're studying the whole book together. Last week we were outside. Brother Ranjur did a great job preaching and he told us that the people were wrapping up a seven-day feast. The people had been in exile. Now they return to their home. They have a big feast. And the Holy Scriptures were proclaimed throughout the feast. It was a wonderful time. Both Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, who was the priest of the people, they were saying things like, this is not a time for weeping. Let's rejoice. God has brought us back. He has been faithful. The talk was of eating the fat and drinking the sweet wine. Chapter 8 is a good chapter. The last part of chapter 8 sums it all up by telling us that God's people were rejoicing. That's how chapter 8 ends. People of God were rejoicing. And so this should lead to a tremendously happy chapter 9, but not so fast. As chapter 9 opens, we see a different picture. Still at the feast, this is just one day further here. Read with me in verse 1 of chapter 9. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. You read that correctly. They have dirt on their heads. This isn't some crazy normal thing they did. This was abnormal. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners. That's what they do when they get down to business. Separating themselves from all the foreigners, and they stood and they confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. So here's the picture. People of God are gathered probably in what's left of the temple, and they might be separated like we are here today, kind of sitting by families, standing there together. But instead of their normal church clothes, their normal garments, they're wearing these sheets of goat hair. A sackcloth is something like a burlap sack, but it's made of goat hair, and it has really one function, and that is to itch. It's intentionally set up to make you feel awful physically, and that's supposed to say something about your soul. I'm expressing this, because that's how I feel inside. And on top of that, They would scoop up from the ground. It'd be hard here in North Carolina because of the clay, but there they could scoop up some sand, some dirt, and just right on their heads, right on the kids' heads. And they sit, and they don't eat. Fasting, same thing. I'm hurting in my belly, and that's indicative. It's reflective of the hurting in my soul. They were intentionally, physically uncomfortable. The big question is, why? What happened between chapter 8 and chapter 9? They went from rejoicing to repentance. What in the world happened? Well, here's what I think happened. They checked the scoreboard. They checked 
the scoreboard. They had been reading the word of God and what shone through was the righteousness of God in contrast to their own unrighteousness. All right? And as they saw more and more of a trustworthy, faithful God, they're aware of their own sin, and so they take a moment. They take a day, and they say, we are going to confess our sin. We're going to be honest about God's holiness and our own unrighteousness. We have rebelled, and we deserve punishment So much so that verse 2 says they confess not only their own sin, but also the sins of their forefathers, right? Their ancestors. One of the many places where we see people willing to own sins of their forefathers. And I think this could be a lesson to us today. Just as they pause for a day, I think it's great practice for us to pause for a day a day, and be in the regular habit of confessing our sin to God and to one another. I'm so thankful that this week in my community group, we sat down together, we went over the book like Caleb was talking about, we prayed, we worshiped, but the member of the group also gave me space to confess, and it was very, very freeing. We should be doing this today as we walk together as a family. But, of course, we have to be careful when it comes to sin confession, right? Because that guy has teeth. That guy will bite you. It can be very scary to confess your own evil, your own mistakes, your own sin and unrighteousness to other people. I've had people tell me this in the church before when we've talked about sin confessing. Uh, one, One girl, bless her heart, she said, I just don't like confessing sin Because when I think about my own evil, it just shatters my self-worth, right? I I just, I go to a dark, dark place. I can't think happy thoughts. If I look at my own evil, it swallows me up. And why is that? Maybe you've had that same experience. Why is that? It's because confession without confidence is condemnation. Think about that. Confession without confidence is condemnation. We must be assured as we confess the worst about ourselves to God and to others that God is still for us. We must be assured. We must have that confidence. The question becomes, how how do we do that then? How can we understand that God is holy and we are sinful, but entirely come before him with confidence. How do you gain the confidence to confess? Well, we can learn here from God's people who went before us. And you'll see this pattern. What we're looking at today as God's people in 2021 is back at God's people in Nehemiah. And what they're doing is they're looking back at God's people before them. Okay? So that's, there's a lot of looking back that's going on here, but that's, that's okay, and we're going to learn from it. Look in verse 3. They're having a big fast day, confession day, and they stood up in their place, and they read from the book of the law, the scriptures, the book of the law of the Lord their God, for a quarter of the day. All right, they're structured, they're organized. For another quarter of it, they made confession and they worshipped 
their Lord. So this is how the day went. They would divide it up in one section. They would read the word. They would read the word. They would read the word. And then after that, they would confess. But they would also worship. It wasn't like they confessed and they spiraled downward. Understand? They confessed. It did not lead them to condemnation. Instead, they found confidence to worship the Lord. Why is that? How did they pull it off? The rest of the chapter tells us the secret. So as we go, we'll look for that key question. If you're going to have a healthy spiritual life, you're going to have to understand and own who you are before God without ending up in condemnation. All right, The self-beatdown where you feel so worthless and shameful. We want to avoid that, but we must be honest about our own unrighteousness before God. This is how we'll do it. Let's keep going. Look with me in verse 6. And note how these people pray. It's amazing. I want to pray more like this. Listen to how they pray. Verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made heaven and the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth. You made that. And all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. I read one verse and I counted five times they prayed the word you. My prayers are often the opposite, right? And that's not bad, but it is a different emphasis. And I think it helps them not slide into condemnation. This is a God-centered prayer. Focused on His Glory, specifically this verse is his glory in creation, but they move on through the high points of Israel's history. Look at verse 7. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abraham and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. And you found his heart faithful before you and you made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite. This is the promised land. Hittite, Amorite, Perizzite, Yebusite, Gergeshite, and this is good. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Again, in light of their own sin, they continue to keep the focus on God's righteousness. He's remembered throughout history as the one who did nothing wrong. Always trustworthy. Always keeping His promises. He's righteous. What does that mean? Well, it means he's doing everything to show off his awesome glory. Let's keep going. Verse 9. Now switching to Moses. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all of his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. Here's a great line. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. What's the name? It's deliverer. It's rescuer. It's hero. And you divided the sea before them, so they went through in the midst of the sea on the dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. People are remembering the delivering graces of their great God, and they're doing so. This is key. They're doing so They're saying, you cast the arrogant into the sea, and then they're saying, oh yeah, I'm arrogant. But they're not melting, right? They're not falling apart. They're not withering in their soul. 
they're headed to worship. Interesting, gritty, real, genuine back and forth they're having in their prayers, focusing on the greatness of God. This is why I said earlier, if this were a game of some sort, God would be 50 points ahead. He's scoring all the points here. He's the one who's trustworthy. He's the one who's faithful. Points for people, zero. It's a beatdown. Now here's the thing. The people are not crumbling under the righteousness of God. I don't know how you feel when you become aware of your sin. There's a video I saw, a little cute video I saw online this week. And it reminded me of how I feel. Let's see if you can see it. This is a guy pointing out where his dog has made a mess. Do we have the? Okay, there you go. Look at this guy. He's frozen. He's been called out for his mistake, and he is frozen. And he begins to shake with his guilt and shame, doggy shame, because he's been found out for messing on the floor. I saw that and I resonated. <laughs> because when I'm made aware of my own sin before a holy God, I just freeze up. I get that one leg up, doggy shame, shaking in my soul. And I hate it. It can be very destructive to who you are. That's how I feel. I don't know if you feel that way. Shame. This will cripple your soul. Spirit can be shriveled up. I feel like Adam, when he sinned, he couldn't wait to find any plant life he could to cover up his nakedness before God because he felt that shame. But God's people in Nehemiah, they have a different approach. They're not shaking and petrified like that dog. They're not hiding like Adam in the garden. Look how they can shift seamlessly in verse 16 from knowing God's glory to their own confession. First, they're talking about their forefathers again. But they and our fathers, we acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. This is how rebellious they were against God. They said, we choose slavery. And they are stiff-necked. That's the picture of an ox who does not want to be turned. He is stubborn. Yesterday I saw my middle schooler watching my dog and I've taught my dog how to heal. That means he's supposed to walk right beside me on the leash. The problem is I taught him. I'm the oldest. I'm the master. When I get the kids to do it, I look over and the dog is... He's walking my middle schooler. Not the other way around. Because he's stubborn. Even on a leash, he's pulling against it the other way. And that's the picture the people of Israel are saying, that's who our fathers were. We're no different. It's confession of sin. They're not mindful of God's glory. We see the same thing down in verse 26. Skip on down to verse 26. After God displayed His awesomeness in the promised land, how did the people react? 
Verse 26 says, Nevertheless, the people were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. The worst kind of behind the back pass. They did away with it. They threw the law away and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. On and on we hear about the rebellion and Nehemiah's folks, they were owning that. They were bringing it up in their prayers. And then ultimately down in verse 33, they sum all of their forefathers' sin up in themselves and they said, yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. Talking about the exile, we deserved it because of our rebellion. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. I don't know if you talk about yourself that way before God, but Nehemiah's people did. My guess is you don't feel comfortable talking about yourself to God and others that way because you don't know how God's going to think about you. And you for sure don't know how other people are going to think about you if you lead with your own wickedness in light of God's righteousness. And yet, these people did it and it led them to worship. Joy in God. The way we said it, our goal is to treasure Jesus. And they had a pathway not denying their sin, but saying it bluntly before a holy God. Theologian Fred Zaspel says it like this. He sums up the situation. He said, God in his own perfection is the essence and standard of what is right. God is ever concerned to glorify himself in all that he does, and his righteousness tells us just that. Righteousness consists in glorifying God and nothing less. Simply put, because God is himself righteous, he requires the same of all his creatures. He despises those who steal or defraud others, not because this is a violation of some abstract standard, but because it is contrary and an affront to God himself, whose very nature demands what is true and right. That's a pretty good summary. My summary is the score is 50 to 0, and we need a hero. Now let's review Nehemiah 9, what we've seen is God's people recognize their own sinfulness up against the backdrop of God's righteousness. They know they deserve punishment. That's why they're standing around in itchy goat hair with dirt on their faces. And yet, they are confident and they do not feel condemned. Don't mistake their repentance, contrition, confession for hopelessness. It is not. They prove it over and over again. And this is how they do it. The answer becomes clear. The secret becomes clear in verse 18 because they have just said, our type, our kind, our people, we are stiff-necked and stubborn. That's who we are. We're your your people. We own that. But we're stiff-necked, we're stubborn, we're rebellious. But the real question is, who are you, O God? Who do we know You to be, and we see this in verse 18. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and you didn't forsake your people. 
Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. You can't get much worse than that. I don't know if you're in the habit of ranking sins against God, but if you read through the Old Testament, this blasphemous idolatry is right up there. And that's what God's people did. Even when they did that, you, verse 19, in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not apart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light them the way which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, and you did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. That's a good picture, right? Their clothes didn't wear out, even though they blasphemed you. Their feet didn't swell up, even though they were evil. In fact, it turns out the whole chapter is chock full of God's mercy. Look down to verse 28. Again, this is God's reaction after his people had rebelled. But after they had had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to their hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet... When they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to what they deserve? No. According to your mercies. Oh, how we must turn to our merciful God when we realize our sin. Finally, verse 31. Again, God's response. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Catch the theme? You're merciful. You're merciful. You're merciful. Remember, confession without confidence is condemnation. But these people had confidence, and it came from an intimate knowledge of the mercies of God. The great Augustine once wrote, flee to God himself if you would flee from him. Flee to him by confessing, not hiding. For hide you cannot, but confess you can. Sounds like Yoda in his grammar a little bit there. (laughs) Hide you cannot, but confess you can. I think he was on to something there. Today, our confidence must chiefly be in the mercy of God as shown to us in Jesus Christ. He's the hero that will stand in your place. His death is your death. His life is your life. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, there has been a great exchange made for our sake God made Jesus to be sin, even though he knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how the mercy worked itself out. You see, God has given us the righteousness of Christ and given Jesus the punishment that we deserved. Writer Ray Ortland says it like this, God so charged Christ, he implicated him, loaded him with our sin, that at the cross he was treated as if he embodied our sin, so that we, 
just because we are in Christ and for no other reason, I love that, might be treated as if we embodied the righteousness of God, perfectly fulfilling his law, receiving the smile and the welcome of the judge. That's good news. That is good news. This week at the Williams house, we had some plumbing drama. Let me set the stage here. My house is not new, neither is my water heater, and I had noticed some signs of malfunctioning, some deterioration. You don't want to play around with that, I am told, with the water heater. And so I made a plan. Got spring break coming up this week, and I'm going to repair it or replace it. A couple weeks ago, my wife, wiser than me, comes to me and says, I think you ought to get on that sooner. I think you ought to replace it now. And so I respond as a great, perfect husband, I bow up and I say, well, what mechanically is wrong with it? Can you explain exactly what's wrong with it to me? And she just says wisely, have you looked at it lately? <laughs> and she was right. It's in trouble. So I make a plan to do it this coming week. The problem is it busted last Thursday. It springs a leak right where the element is. And it had leaked before a little bit. But this is a gusher. And so, I'm shamed. I should have done this earlier. In the moment, I hit my knees, and in a, what had to be a funny spectacle, I grabbed the detergent cups, because that's the only thing small enough to scoop out of the pan. If you know water heaters, they have a pan under them usually, and so any other scooper won't fit. So I grabbed the laundry detergent, and I'm scooping like it's a life raft, and I'm bailing into this bigger bucket, and my son is carrying the bucket, and he's dumping it. He brings it back. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. And all the while, I'm diagnosing, right? I'm no plumber, but I give it the Williams diagnosis. And I can't figure out how in the world I'm going to be able to fix this. And so the conversations begin. My lovely daughter walks up and she says, hey, I see this is the problem. She's 10. Well, can you fix it? Now it's double shame. I not only neglected to repair it or replace it on time, in the middle of it, I cannot fix it. Thankfully, after several texts and phone calls and help from some of you guys, I found someone who could come out the next day. So I was very happy with. I had made the announcement to the entire family. There will be no showers for a while. <laughs> and I don't know how long, but prepare yourself. The next day, the plumber came out. Total replacement. He gets my old rusty one and replaces it with a shiny new one. Such that on Friday, when the same daughter comes by, and the plumber has left the building. She says, oh, did you fix it? She's 10. Did you fix it? Can we now take showers? And I said, no, I failed. I could not fix it. But you can have a hot shower. I take confidence in the plumber and his expertise and his ability to make this right. Folks, we must take confidence in the work of Jesus Christ. His death and his resurrection give us the confidence to confess before God. It's nothing that we did, not our abilities or our failures that determine how God is going to respond. He wants contrition. 
He wants covenant love. He wants commitment and faithfulness. He wants honesty. And he wants confession. This is why Paul can write so beautifully in Romans 8.1. Because of what Jesus did, there is now, not before the plumber comes, but after the plumber comes and gives me a shiny new one, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for all of those who are in Christ Jesus. Confession with confidence yields celebration. Confession with confidence yields celebration. David Crowderband had that song. He used to love to sing it. You alone are Savior. You alone are God. And then there's the part in the middle where you just sing, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive. That's not a tryout, J.D. I love that song. But only after seeing Jesus as Savior does your heart come alive. And I want you to consider this an invitation here. All right? If your heart is in dead spots like mine is sometimes, confess your sin to Jesus and watch what He does. He can declare to you His righteousness. Don't confess without looking to Jesus. Confess while you're looking to Jesus and worship will come. And if you're here and you've never experienced Jesus Christ, you're a seeker. You just came because someone invited you. You're just watching online. You're a child. You're a teenager. You're a college student. I invite you to experience the free in grace of God in Jesus Christ. You can come to Him. You don't have to come to me. Come to Him in your heart. Turn to Him. Confess who you are and He will forgive you. And He will make you alive. Somebody in my community group texted me a quote this week from A.B. Simpson's famous quote. He said, One bright and thankful look at the cross is worth a thousand morbid, self-condemning reflection. Just one look. That's because when we confess our sins to God, Jesus will not disappoint us. He's got something for everyone. A new beginning in an abundant life. I was researching this this week and I have some quotes. I'm going to quote you to death here. They're not for me, but they moved me and I want to read one. Pastor Bob Kellerman wrote on this. Through the cross, we receive honor before God. From poor to rich, slavery to royalty, from weak to strong, from foolish to wise, from ugly to beautiful, from useless to missional, from shame to honor, from naked to clothed, from unclean to holy, from outcast to beloved. That is what it is to experience Jesus Christ through your own repentance, confession, and standing before Him in faith. Another author I read named Dustin Crow. he compares sin confession to using your windshield wipers. Listen to this. Unconfessed sin blurs our vision so we can't see or communicate clearly with God. Confession is how we remove it so we can draw near to God. We value windshield wipers not because they're a glitzy feature, 
but because they provide us with an unobstructed vision in the middle of a storm. A great picture of what confession looks like. It allows you to see through the storm to Jesus Himself. Oftentimes, confession will lead to experiencing Jesus as the friend that you never had. Had that happened? Pastor Ronnie Martin tweeted this week, he said, Jesus never repels us. He's always present. He's never dismissive. He's always inviting. Never frustrated. Always forgiving. Never bored. Always interested. Never unstable. Always permanent. He's a friend like no other. We all have unstable relationships. And man, they are heavy. Jesus, never unstable. Always permanent. Amazing. He's truly our hero and friend. But listen to this. The story of your own confession doesn't end here with just you and God. We're talking to staff as a church, church leaders and staff meeting this week, and we're praying and talking about this text. And Pastor Sean said, you know, first and foremost, there's this confidence with God, peace, because of what Jesus did for us. But if you're going to confess and you're anywhere but your own closet space, if you're confessing with other people, you've got to have a confidence that they will not condemn you, right? You also need to have that because you're not alone in this journey. God has given you a church. God has given you a people. And we have to have confidence in each other. Now think about the type of feelings that can come up in someone's heart Maybe community group. Maybe in another setting. Maybe you're having coffee with them. Think about the feelings that can come up in them as they go to confess to you in front of you. Counselor Ed Welch has some words that I think fit this experience. He says this, You feel like an outcast. You don't belong. You feel naked. While everyone else is walking around with their clothes on, you feel exposed and vulnerable. You are seen... And what others see is not pretty. You feel unclean. Something's wrong with you. You're dirty. Even worse, you're contaminated. And there's a difference between being a bit muddy and harboring a deadly contagious virus. That's a good picture in the middle of COVID here, right? There's a difference between being a little bit muddy and saying, I have covid that plumber came over to my house this week and he told me, he said, man, I've been eating so much during COVID because I'm not exercising. I've gained 15 pounds. I said, well, I, I lost 10 when I had COVID. <laughs> and he's like, what? I didn't mean I had it myself. But uh, he was fine. I told him it was months ago. I mean, he, was, he was fine. But there's a difference between saying I'm a little muddy and I got a virus. That's what's happening in the hearts of people when they confess before you. And here's the question. Are you willing to be the type of brother that your brother can have confidence in? Can they trust you as a sister to show them grace? Now, all of this is accompanied by repentance. I'm not trying to belittle repentance. That's not what I'm focusing on. I'm assuming that. What I'm talking about is as someone is repenting, 
They are confessing to you. How will you respond? Here's some questions. If someone confesses sin to you, do you pray grace down on them or do you look down on them? Will you fight alongside them or will you run far away from them? Do you counter with your own false piety when someone confesses or with God's undying promises? When someone confesses, are you more aware of your own sin or your own sainthood? Will you weep over their sin with them or weaponize their sin against them? Think about your marriage. Are they hindered by your self-righteousness or reminded of Christ's saving righteousness? Will you love them as aggressively as Christ has forgiven you? Those are good questions to ask yourself. Because i got to tell you, if you're not that type of person, your experience of the Christian life is going to be that nobody confesses to you. (laughs) And your relationships are going to be this shallow and this meaningful. Become the person that someone would love to confess to. On the TCC website, I'm so thankful, under who we are, vision and values, we talk about this. We call it being a community of grace. Here's what we write On our website for everybody to see. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of grace. Having been rescued from our sin by the grace of God, we want to create an environment where we remind one another of grace, especially when we make mistakes. Seeing the church as the primary context for growing in this gospel of grace, we will regularly talk about the evidences of God's grace. Point one another to our need for Christ. Fight alongside one another against sin with the promises of God and act in His grace for the joy of all the church and for His glory. Brothers, sisters, if you're serious about your relationship with God and you have an ounce of self-awareness, you must know by nature we're stiff-necked people. We're rebels against God. Though He never once failed us, We rebel. We persist in our sin against Him. And so do the people in your sphere. His righteousness is perfect. We're prone to wonder. The score is 50 to 0, but Jesus is our hero. And so we must be willing to receive the confession of others. One way to do this is by giving people repeatedly confidence that you are a safe place in the sense that you're going to point them to Jesus Christ. Now I want to end with a picture of this in the Bible. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, I think he has this type of friend. He's got a funny name, but it's fitting. Onesiphorus. For us. Get it? Onesiphorus is someone in Paul's life that seemed to draw near when others pulled away. Listen to this one verse we have in 2 Timothy 1, 16 and 17. Paul is writing back to the church. And he's writing about the, the relatives of this guy, Onesiphorus. Paul says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household 
of Onesiphorus. Why? Because he often refreshed me. And he was not ashamed of my chain. See that? Paul came to Onesiphorus, and he, he didn't shame him. He refreshed him with the good news. I want to pray for us now, and we'll move into a time of the Lord's Supper together. As I was reading in preparation this week, I found a prayer online. And I want to pray it over us because it's very fitting here. And I want to sit under the prayer myself. So I'll pray this, and then we'll go to a time of the Lord's Supper where you get to act out what we just said. In light of the death of Jesus, you can confess your sin and receive the living mercy of Jesus Christ. So let me pray for us here. Dear God, dear Jesus, Onesiphorus is a member of our forever family. We'll have to wait till heaven to meet him. But we love to imitate. Long before we meet him in the new earth, we'd love to imitate him. He entered Paul's pain, O oh God, and he brought refreshment. He wasn't ashamed of Paul's weakness. He gave encouragement, not shame. So Jesus, God, make us more refreshing in the way we relate to others. Fill our hearts with your kindness, our hands with your mercy. Give us gospel eyes to see others as you see them. Sensitize our spirits with your spirit. Make our to-love list always take precedence over our to-do list. For the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself in love. Galatians 5, 6 teaches us this, God. If we're too busy to care, then we're too busy. If we're more irritated than merciful in view of people's various imprisonments, then we are more in chains than they are. Jesus, you searched us and you found us. You broke our chains, you bore our shame, and you set us free. You are the quintessential refreshment. May we love others as you love us. Amen.